some creep, some crawl, and they come in all shapes and sizes. I'm talking about pests. Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today we're exploring two pests that have shown up around New York. We'll hear from research scientist and Fordham alum Dan Malloy about one pesky species that's haunting some of New York's waterways. But first, I sit down with Fordham University Associate Professor of Biology, Jason Mushi south He's here to talk about one pest all New Yorkers are familiar with, rats. Before we get into your study, why study rats? What's the goal? We first became interested in rats because we were studying uh, native small mammals uh, that live in New York City parks, and we were interested in what's happening to them because they become isolated in these tiny little forests inside of places like Central Park or the New York Botanical Garden across the street from our Fordham campus. And uh, we were finding that they were changing rapidly uh, in ways that we didn't necessarily anticipate. One thing that was happening is that they were becoming more homogeneous. So within a site, they were starting to resemble each other more and more in terms of their genetics. And that's because they were basically stuck in these little islands. Um, but if you compared one of these little forest islands to another forest island, they look quite different in terms of their genetics. So you could take a mouse from one of these parks and compare it to a mouse from a different park using genetic tools, and you could basically distinguish them. So they look like separate populations. So the mouses are almost like they're getting their own burrow. You could recognize them from their park, the burrow, right. along those lines. And now we're measuring various uh, traits corresponding to their body shape and size and how they move around, things like that, to see if those factors have changed and not just the genetics. Um, but what What's happening with those mice, they're, they're native animals that have been here well before the New York City was really present. But as we built up the city, they became trapped in these little places. So the well, way we structure the city has influenced them? Right. So the way we built up the, our urban landscape has basically changed their evolutionary history. Um, so they were all sort of one big mixed population that was you know, evolving over time, changing over time, probably fairly slowly. But once we trapped them in these little isolated pockets... They started to lose genetic variation, but also potentially to um, adapt to those local conditions. And that's what we're looking at now to see how they've adapted. How can your research be used practically? Well, that study was uh, really to understand how urbanization might be changing the evolutionary history of native species that live in and around our cities. And I guess that was more you know, for our own scientific interests, but also to understand the impacts of humans on wildlife and other species. So we started working on these native animals, and the one question that everyone asks us is, well, what's going on with the rats? Why do they ask that? Because it's New York City, and <laughs> most people have not seen a white-footed mouse in these parks because they're out at night and they're small and secretive, but almost everybody's seen a We've rat. We've seen right? some rats. Yeah, you can stand on a subway platform, and if you're looking, you will usually see them. Uh, the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, the Upper West Side, Washington Heights, uh, Lower Manhattan, those are some of the rattiest neighborhoods. Right. You, know, you can see them out even in the day. Uh, and at first, you know, I was resistant to studying rats because they're they're difficult to deal with. Um, what do you mean deal with? Difficult to deal with? Difficult to well, catch, I would guess. Yeah, they're hard to trap. They're very wily. They're aggressive if you catch them alive. Um, Were you trying to catch them one way or the other, or it didn't matter as long uh, as you caught them? We do all of our rat trapping on land owned by the city, mostly New York City parks. And they don't want you to catch a rat alive and let it go. Huh. Because it's a pest. So we use same techniques as exterminators. We use like a snap trap to mm -hmm. catch them, um, which is better for everyone involved for the most part because they can be quite aggressive right. when trapped. And so we were resistant to studying them. 
But there's a whole host of other questions about rats that are really interesting and how they're using the city in ways that are different than the native animals. So unlike the, the native species that are trapped in these little green spaces, rats can basically use the rest of the city. And it was interesting because we never trapped them inside the forests, but they're everywhere just outside and on the edge. Do they live in the forest? Do no, they, they go in there? In some places they'll go. Usually they're just passing through like some of the streams in Central Park. There are some rats, but they don't you know, take up shop and build homes in the forest. It's not really their habitat. They prefer the um, city. Yeah, so they've they've already adapted to living with human beings. And, you know, we're an easy mm. source of food. The infrastructure we build provides housing for them. So they're kind of lazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, we it, make it easy for them. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of their lifestyle. They're, they're, in some ways, a parasite on human society. Right. Um, so there's this big question of how are they using urban space? Um, how do they move around the city? Is it one big rat population? Or do they have their own sort of neighborhoods that build up over time where you see the same sort of rat families populating out in an area and so they're all kind of related or do they move around so much that the whole population is basically the same in a genetic sense and then the whole host of other questions about how have they evolved since they arrived in new york city and uh, we think so the historical records suggest they arrived with uh, british colonists sometime in the mid 18th century and the latest date is probably around the Revolutionary War time. On the ships um, that came in. Yeah, so they, there were other rats here before called black rats. Um, but when the, the rat that's here now, it's called the brown rat or the Norway rat, came, it's a bigger, more aggressive species, and it displaced the black rat. Which um, is a nice way. It, it moved it out of, out yeah, of its hood. You uh, gotta go. A complete takeover, yeah. And so there's a whole host of questions about what happened with this rat population that arrives in the mid-18th century and then lives in New York City as it grows up as a city and expands out through the whole area. How are they changing in an evolutionary sense? What's happened to them since they came here? Because they started out as a small population and became a massive population. Have you found that there are different species of rats? Um, no, and that's true of the white-footed mice too. So they're not different species, but they are distinct populations okay. in these different forest fragments. But they haven't been isolated long enough um, to become separate species. That would likely take quite a few more years, hundreds to thousands at least. Jason, when you were collecting the rats, what did you use to bait them? The best approach is to survey what's around. What are they likely eating? What are the typical trash items? Because those are the foods they're used to um, and are most likely to uh, go for in a trap. Um, the other thing to take into consideration is that um, you know they have their own dietary needs as well, so you want it to be probably a high-quality food. Hmm. Um, a high-quality food would be something that offers nutrition. Um, they need nutrition just like we do. Mm -hmm. You know, they need vitamins. They need protein. Uh, fats are a high-quality food for them because there's a lot of calories. Shake Shack. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, That's what I would go for if I was in Manhattan. <laughs> right. Um, and sometimes even fresh vegetables they'll eat, and mm. they have to drink water every day, unlike um, some other small mammals. And we tried a few things. What we finally started using last year, which was fairly successful, was... Uh, Peanut butter mixed with oats and uh, bacon, little pieces of cooked Who bacon. Who doesn't love bacon? <laughs> and it actually, I mean, I tasted it. It was it was actually pretty good, and the rats seemed to go for it, too. Okay. You know, you have some protein in there. Um, you have fat. You have a little bit of sugar. So, Jason, do rats have some beneficial quality that's underappreciated by humans? Um, I think that uh, definitely their ability to remove food and scavenge in an urban environment might be of use. 
Uh, although so this mean they, we'd have more garbage in New York if it wasn't for the rats, maybe. Right. So like garbage in medians in broad, you know, along Broadway and in in tree pits and throwing down the sewer and that sort of thing. They do remove it. Whether that service is uh, enough to make up for the damage they do by, you know, disturbing, tr- you know, trash in bags or chewing holes in walls and chewing up wires and contaminating food and. I don't think it supersedes the damage they do, but it's kind of interesting to think of them not just as a pest, but part of this new ecosystem that's been created by humans, that they they do have a role and they interact with other species, they compete with other species. And your research is going to sort of show us how much of a, a effect they might have on that. Right. We just assume rats are disgusting. I mean, it's something that we just naturally take for granted. How did they get that reputation for being like icky and squirmish and disgusting? You know, rats bite people. Um, they contaminate food. They do carry disease. There was actually a survey published recently by Columbia University scientists of all the pathogens they carry. And it was quite a few. And some of them are, you know, somewhat disturbing. Um, and we don't really know how much food contamination is caused by rodents. You know, people get food poisoning, but we don't necessarily know why. Right, if a rat walked um, on your cupcake or something and right. you didn't realize it. Right, or they leave, you know, their urine and droppings and it contaminates food. Rodents, one of their key characteristics is that they gnaw constantly. Rats are excellent at gnawing. They have very strong jaws and they're constantly, you know, chewing holes and things and chewing up wires. So even though they, they might have some benefits, let's not let's not pretend that rats aren't a problem. So I think that's how they got this reputation. That reputation is probably fair. Okay. I, I would not in any way try to, you know, glorify rats in New York City <laughs> as this, you know, they are amazing, but at the same time, I would not wish anybody to have an active rat infestation. Will your research be able to tell if there are some populations of rats in this area that might be more aggressive because of the environment as opposed to this somewhere else? So what we're doing now is we're sequencing uh, entire genomes from number of rats in New York City, so their entire genetic code. So far, we've sequenced 15 rats. We just received those data back. And we're going to be scanning those genomes to identify genes that have undergone selection, so that have adapted through natural selection in New York City. And one of our major hypotheses is that traits we associate with behavior have changed in uh, New York City rats. So one example would be what psychologists call neophobia. Um, so rats are very curious animals, and they'll insp- you know check out things in their environment, or you constantly see them inspecting and sniffing around. But at the same time, they can be uh, very afraid of new things placed in their environment. So when we- that's one of the reasons they're so hard to trap. If you put a trap down, you know, in a locked station where there was nothing before, it takes them a while usually before they'll really check it out. You'd expect neophobia to be enhanced in a dense, crowded environment where there's been a lot of effort to control rats. One place we're hoping to get a lot of rats from are uh, big trash rooms and so forth in buildings. They often aren't aggressive to each other because there's just so much food. So Um, they don't need to be. Right. So it's possible that aggression could be suppressed in some parts of the city just because aggression comes with costs. Um, And if there's ample food, you don't need to compete as much. Uh, in your opinion, Jason, is there a new or unusual animal maybe or rodent you think will be living with New Yorkers in maybe 50 or 100 years? Something we might be surprised that, hey, that's here. That's in the city. Like now people are like, they're coyotes in New York City. How is that happening? Yeah. So one thing that's happened that's really interesting is that New York City is so built up 
Um, but we're surrounded by an area that's actually seen forests come back in a big way. So you've seen big increases in populations of white-tailed deer, black bears, coyotes, turkeys, these species that had really declined but have made a big comeback. So there are a number of species I would anticipate will be present in New York City on that time, within that time frame. Um, one animal that's been seen in the Bronx, there's a picture of it, it was taken by a New York City police officer, is a fisher. And a fisher is a large member of the weasel family. It's kind of like a big, bushy weasel. Okay. Um, and they've, they've increased in number quite a bit. So they'll be in New York City within, I'd say, even 10 years. So they're moving in this direction. Years. Yeah, and they're very effective predators of uh, squirrels and rabbits, so they'll find plenty. So um, we we touched on it a little bit, Jason, about how your research can be used in a practical way. Ult but ultimately, what would you like to see done with it? Uh, one application of this kind of research to understand how animals move through a city is to change the orientation of green spaces so the animals are more free to move between natural spaces within the city. So expand um, the green spaces. Right. So could we build greenways between parks where you have kind of continuous distributions of native small mammals and butterflies and salamanders and coyotes have, you know, spaces to move around where they're not as likely to be run over by cars and that sort of thing. So that's one application that I think could be positive is helping us reconceive parks not just as these, you know, postage stamps within neighborhoods, but as part of an integrated network of green space. And I think that would also... You know, that has real uh, benefits to people as well. You know, if you if you could go out and take a walk between several parks for a long period of time, it you know, that's a way to kind of reduce your stress in the city and kind of experience nature in the city in a way you can't right now, where you can go to a park and walk around a little bit, but then, you know, there's an edge and then right. you're right back in it. Um, so it might be nice to take a walk from, you know, the Bronx to Manhattan without crossing a bridge right or or crossing a bridge that's all greenery right and if you look at the way parks are laid out that seems to be part of the way they were conceived originally you know there's kind of a green way of parks that stretches from brooklyn through most of queens and it wouldn't really take that much effort to connect those and it have benefits for nature and people and i think just the aesthetics of the city um obviously people don't want to make it easier for rats to move around <laughs> But if we know how rats move from one place to another and where you have or where you have kind of local clusters of rats that are all related, that gives you an idea of what you need to do to control rats. Um, the way it kind of happens now is people put up traps and they throw out poison uh, and they'll maybe try to patch up a building and so forth. But it's kind of a piecemeal ad hoc approach to getting rid of them or trying to control their populations. But if we know the scale of the city that are a, a local cluster of rats actually uses, you could design a much better strategy. Let's say there's a, a rat infestation in medians on the Upper West Side. You could just go crush the burrows right there and throw some poison down, and you'd reduce their numbers, but they'd be back again. Right. But if you knew how they moved around and how big their sort of neighborhood was of rats that are related to them, you could design a control strategy that addressed that entire area. So you go through, you inspect all the buildings, you know, you patch up all the holes and, and destroy all the burrows and identify where there's trash that's too easily ac accessible for rats and that sort of thing. So if we if we know a lot, if we know more about rat biology in urban areas, then that's a real application. And possibly even put that into the way we create buildings. Right. Possibly.
yeah, so it, it'll help rodent control. That's not my main interest. Um, you know, I'm an ecologist and evolutionary biologist who just finds rats very interesting. But I realize that, you know, that's something that people are interested in. And if we could move away from a sort of ad hoc poisoning of this animal to right. a more rational strategy that... You and know, some people addresses... are looking for that because they're fearful of their pets, right. you know, getting into this poison. Right. Poisoning rats is kind of cruel. Um, it doesn't work. And a lot of places in the city have stopped doing it because if a rat is poisoned and is then caught by a hawk or something that, or a coyote, th those animals will end up poisoned as well. So it's not a, not a long-term solution to the rat problem at all. Sure. So, so Jason, who's working on this project with you? So I have a new graduate student at Fordham uh, in the Department of Biological Sciences named Matthew Combs, who is running the trapping now and uh, taking the lead on a lot of our efforts to understand how rats move through Manhattan. Yeah, and we also have an undergraduate also named Matt, uh, Matthew Woolman. He is looking at this gene in rats that has evolved to provide resistance to poison. Um, there's actually a gene that makes the rats... Uh, partially resistant to warfarin, which was one of the oh. original rat poisons that was used. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Up next, I talk with research scientist Dan Malloy. We're discussing his work with one pesky species that haunts some of New York's waterways. Dan, what is this invader and what damage is it doing? Well, the invader is called the zebra mussel. This little critter snuck into North America in the mid-80s, likely inside a ballast water of a ship coming from Europe because its native range is Europe. And it was first observed in 1988, but you don't observe it the first year it arrives. So this little critter, and we often say silent invaders because they're underwater, so you don't know they're there for quite some time. And they're very, very prolific. These mussels, they're separate sexes, males and females, and the female can produce up to a million eggs a year. And what happens within a few years, typically, when they invade a new water body, is that you go out and you cut your feet on rocks because those rocks have these zebra mussels, sometimes tens of thousands per square yard or square meter. So they build up in very high numbers. They have the ability to turn the ecology of the lakes upside down. How are these different than, like, the mussels we eat from seafood restaurants? All of the shellfish that you eat, whether it's oysters, clams, or mussels, those are salt water. These mussels are freshwater mussels. But what they have in common, again, with the mussels that you order in a restaurant, is that they have the ability to attach to hard surfaces. So when these little critters, these zebra mussels, came into North America, they were the first bivalves, two shells, that could attach onto a hard surface. Now you'd say, well, so what? Well, that means they started to attach not only to rocks, they started to attach inside pipes that were drawing water off lakes and rivers that they were infesting. And what happens then is the flow of water decreases. If you are the manager of a nuclear power plant on the Great Lakes and your pipes are starting to get clogged up with zebra mussels, you've got a serious problem. And that's what started, for example, here in New York State. They Again, they were first discovered in North America in 1988 in Lake St. Clair, which is um, between Lake Huron and Lake Erie by Detroit. 
but then they work their way towards New York, floating along with the current, and enter the Erie Canal out by Buffalo, etc. So New York State, the Department of Environmental Conservation, had to make some choices back in the early 90s to allow the power companies of the state of New York with those nuclear power plants and other types of power plants to start treating their pipes that were becoming clogged with zebra mussels. Now, uh, Dan, what were they treating them with? Ba- back in the 90s especially, there was very little choice, very little choice of what to treat with because uh, not enough research had been done trying to come up with, let's say, environmentally safer control agents. So literally, the, the chemical of choice was bleach. Literally, they were putting bleach into their pipes, and that bleach, and anyone who knows bleach knows how corrosive it is. It absolutely cleaned out their pipes of zebra mussels and anything else in in those pipes. But it then went into the water. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. There are ways they try to recapture um, that material, the bleach, before it goes back out into the lake or river, but they, they, they don't get it all. So what the power companies actually did, and it's very forward-looking, Back in the 90s, they um, gave me, because I develop environmentally safe control agents, they gave me funds to pursue uh, developing a, a safer control agent for these muscles. And, you know, that's what my lab did. It took an awful long time. It literally took two decades. And our lab at the New York State Museum passed the baton of a biological control agent, which is now commercialized by a company in California. It's called Zequinox. And it kills zebra mussels. And, and just for it's, full it's, disclosure, it's revolutionary. And for full disclosure, uh, you do not receive, uh, uh, you don't have a financial tie Absolutely. to the, the company. A, a, so we're not trying yeah. to sell this product. No, 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 it's no. just letting people know that this is the agent that was used to get rid of yeah, the this, zebra mussels. Exactly. No, yeah. So I'll always be the patent inventor, but I worked for New York State. So I passed over the ownership of the patent to the to New York State government. So I don't receive anything. I do want to get into how Zequinox works. Yeah. But first, I want to understand how the zebra mussel is spread. And how does it spread so quickly? So let's look at how it naturally spreads. For example, in Europe, where its native ranges, it naturally spreads by going down rivers and getting into new lakes just by the current. So you can see it's not going to spread too far, too fast, if that's how it spreads naturally. However, once humans started to navigate on waterways, once fishermen started to go from one lake to another lake with their boats, they started to bring these mussels with them. As, as I've mentioned, these mussels easily can attach onto any hard surface underwater. So, so it's really boat traffic, I call it. The movements of, movement of boats, which is the primary way zebra mussels spread. Do zebra mussels have any endearing qualities at all? You can always have two columns, advantages and disadvantages, but we'd be so much better off if they stayed in Europe. But getting back to the endearing, I wouldn't say endearing qualities, but um, they do have some positive benefits. As you said, they're, they're, it's an organism on the bottom attached to things. Any organism that eats snails here in North America, it's going to see that muscle and it's going to try to eat it. So organisms like fish and diving birds, crayfish, they will, they will eat zebra mussels. But there are, the, the, the list of disadvantages is far longer 
than the advantages. You know, so what they do is they turn the ecosystem upside down. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. No. So explain to me how your biological control agent, Zequinox, works. Yeah. Um, Zequinox works because this little bacterium that my lab at the New York State Museum found in 1995, when zebra mussels eat it, they die. And why do they die? They die because the cells of the bacteria... Now, you cannot see these bacteria. They, they're very, 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 very fine. You need a microscope to see them. And, but they, they look like little bricks when you put them under the microscope. And um, they have in their cells some natural compounds. And those natural compounds disrupt the lining of the digestive system of the zebra mussels. So the epithelial lining, like we all have, of the digestive system is disrupted, and that's how it kills. This is the nice thing I like, Robert. As an environmentalist, what the Zequinox product only contains dead bacteria. Bacteria don't have to be alive at all. Why is that important, Dan? It's important to me because as an environmentalist, I don't want to put uh, bacteria... You know, when you do, as a scientist, when you do research, you gain a level of confidence of the safety of the control agent that is being used because you do uh, years and years of study. So I said to myself, look, why put a live bacteria in the water? Who knows? In, in some ways, it may be disruptive if, if it's live. It would disrupt um, other who, water life. Who knows? I don't want to get into studying all that. Right. Why not just put them in dead and stay ahead of the game? So that's it. So now, uh, let me understand this, Dan. The Zequinox affects the lining of the zebra mussels. Digestive system. Digestive system. system. Think of a pipe like we all have it with digestive system. You know, esophagus, stomach, we have small intestines, large intestines. And so they die. They die. Now, if I own this factory and I say, you know, I need this product because... I got to get rid of these zebra mussels that are clogging up, you know, my pipes down here. That's exactly once why it was are, invented. That's once exactly they're it. gone, once they die, rather, how do they go away? How do you get them out of the pipes? Okay, once the zebra mussel dies, they start to rot because they're dead. They start to rot and they fall off of the side of the pipe and they're carried further into the, the uh, factory or the power plant. That's why... Companies don't want these zebra mussels to grow to be too big. They can, they can grow up to be an inch long. So they like to kill them small when they're, you know, even a quarter of an inch long, something like that. And at that point, too, Robin, their shells are thinner. So once you kill them and they start to bounce down the pipe, heading through your your infrastructure, and the, the, the shells can break up into smaller pieces. So you want to get them when they're young. So, Dan, you have another project in the works to sort of tackle the next pest generation. Tell me about it. What is it? Now, lake associations, you know, the people who live around lakes are, are saying, uh, hey, Dan, could we use Zequinox in our lakes? And I say, well, you could. Definitely you could. It's going to kill the zebra mussels. But, um, you know, in terms of cost effectiveness, the, um, the area that you could treat... There's nothing, there's nothing that would be cost-effective to treat an entire lake. And I'm, I'm not just talking about Zequinox, I'm talking about anything would be simply way, way too expensive. And also, 
products, whether they're chemicals or or, or sequinox, are really made. Um, in, they can be used in lakes, but they're you 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 treat an area for a certain number of hours. I don't care whether it's sequinox or a, another chemical, okay, or a chemical, I should say. And then after a certain number of hours, you're supposed to flush it out. Well, if you treat the whole lake, you can't flush it out, okay? So um, there's a need for another type of control aging. Here's my next project, which is going to be my most ambitious project of my entire career. And that is, I have been studying diseases that zebra mussels have in Europe. I mean, that's their native range. And there are diseases that they have, and they only have all evidence. I've been working on these for 20 years. All evidence points to they only have these diseases, and some of these diseases kill them. And I said to myself, if there's any hope of these lake associations being able to have lake-wide control, I didn't say eradication because that's that's like almost impossible. Lake-wide control, they need to place in their lake with their tens, hundreds of thousands of zebra mussels, they need to put a parasite into that lake, a parasite from Europe, from their native range, one that we have identified that is lethal to zebra mussels, and it will spread from mussel to mussel in their lake, and in a natural way, their lakes are interconnected with other lakes, the, the, the parasite will spread and provide some natural control. I'd like to thank my guests, Dan Malloy and Jason Mushi-South. I'd also like to thank my producers, Megan Connor and Blake Christie. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up with us on our weekly podcast. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are up next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Creepy crawly.